Good afternoon, everybody, and welcome to the Institute for Government. My name is Tim Duran. I'm a programme director here at the Institute looking at the role of ministers. It is fantastic to have so many people in the room, and I know there's lots more people online, so thank you for joining us. We are here to talk to Dr. Therese Coffey, MP for Suffolk Coastal and a former minister in three government departments. Therese was first elected in 2010. She was a minister in DEFRA from 2016 to 19, uh, before becoming Secretary of State for Work and Pensions just before the pandemic began. Then, when Liz Truss became Prime Minister, Therese became Deputy Prime Minister, as well as Secretary of State for Health and Social Care, and then Environment Secretary for around the first year of Rishi Sunak's Premiership. Uh, before entering Parliament, Therese worked for Mars. Um, she has a PhD in Chemistry and is a Chartered Management Accountant. And as we were just saying, those aren't regular skills for government ministers. So, quite interested to talk about that. Today we're going to be talking about all of those ministerial roles, some of the big moments in British politics over the last few years, and some of the challenges of ministerial office. We are tweeting from our IFG events account using hashtag IFGCoffee, so please follow and tweet along. We're going to have plenty of time for questions, both from people in the room and online, so please start thinking about that. If you're online, you can use Slido to, um, to ask the questions. Uh, but I will kick off, and if I can, Therese, so as I say, you served in three Secretary of State roles, um, as well as being Deputy Prime Minister. Which department or role did you find the most challenging? Well, Tim, first of all, can I just say thank you for inviting me? Gosh, uh, nine years as a minister. The, my top priority has always been, quite rightly, uh, being the elected member of Parliament for Suffolk Coastal. Um, and it's only by doing that that uh, principally I've been able to be in government. And um, I should say I've worked with some exceptional civil servants. Um, and uh, hopefully I'll get the chance to um, uh, say a bit more about that soon. But thinking of the different challenges, I guess I've been a whip. I've been deputy leader of the House. I went into DEFRA um, for three years, actually, as a, a parliamentary and secretary, temporarily um, a minister of state. Uh, but of the three departments I was at, without question, the most challenging was DEFRA, okay. and particularly while I was secretary of state. And there's a variety of reasons for that. I, think, um, I don't think the rest of the government quite realises the um, stretch and breadth and depth of what DEFRA gets involved in. There's no doubt uh, dealing in a situation where you're also working on international measures, in a situation where you're fully devolved, pivotal in aspects of the implementation of the free trade agreements, particularly the one with the European Union, um, but also some of the random stuff you might not expect. Uh, for example, when Novichok happened, uh, the, the, where Dawn was killed, murdered, but also the attack on, uh, on the Shripal family. The, that was quite an extraordinary moment to be involved in in a different way because DEFRA was responsible for decontamination. But even then, it was a massive insight, but also a way to try and help things in, improve. And that was, for example, trying to get Porton down to have a, a systematic line of how they actually did these processing of different things. But more broadly, I think within DEFRA right now, if I think about uh, that we still had a vision, um, often led by Michael Gove, uh, we had the, the, basically the legislation, if you think of how much legislation that has been done in that department, as well as dealing with all of Brexit. And then I took on trying to do the implementation of a lot of that, inheriting a lot of things. I think the challenge that was pretty evident was summed up when I walked in pretty much on day one or t day two, I t was told I was gonna break the law on Monday because we hadn't done something. We hadn't done the targets. I was told it wouldn't get done until May. That was their best chance. We actually got it done by the 16th of December, I think it was, that we did it. So a lot of this took a lot of drive, delivery, a lot of analysis, and a lot of things I'd really built up with the strong support of you know, fantastically amazing private office that I had in DWP uh, that helped me not all those things could be readily applied into my time in DEFRA straight away. Um, but I think it's um, you know, an exciting department to be part of. I have to say I love my time at DWP, my short time at health. Uh, you know, there was an element there, and I'm sure we'll discuss some of that. Uh, but without doubt, I think uh, uh, my time, while rewarding, was also that was the most difficult. Brilliant. Well, there's so much to cover there, and as you say, we're going to get into the detail. But on DEFRA specifically, why do you think it is that it sort of has that lower profile or isn't sort of fully, uh, I don't want to say fully valued, because that's not what I mean, but why, why is DEFRA sort of not always as uh, high profile as it should be, perhaps? I think because, by and large, um, uh, like quite a lot of 
aspects of government. Sometimes you only see things come out when there's a problem. And um, I think, actually, Theresa May may have regretted some of the things that she did in 2017. There's, I'm sure there's plenty of things that she regretted putting in the manifesto. But the, the, there are aspects of um, the environment which stood out then, which we had not really addressed at the time. I think, in particular, if we think about farming, we're on this huge transition of having left the European Union. And I think everybody just assumes the job is done, and far from it. I think one of the things that civil servants experience on a daily basis is that you actually have to deliver what you say you're going to do, but you shouldn't also back away when something isn't working in the way that it should. It's worth testing. It's worth saying, have we actually got this policy right? And um, I think that's one of the things that it touches you know, the air we breathe, the water we drink, uh, the waste that we generate. It's just absolutely... Um, all-encompassing, as well as the food, uh, our farmers, it's just never-ending. And I think there's a lot of ambition, and I think overall one of my reflections of aspects of government, and perhaps I was able to make some more choices a bit more readily in some of the other departments, or straightforwardly, even though it did come often with personal consequences, was being able to just say, look, we need to prioritise, and we're not going to be able to get everything done that we can. Uh, but a I would say that whether it's animal welfare, whether it's about environment, whether it's aspects of farming, people are exceptionally passionate about these matters. And my very first weekend as an MP, um, we, uh, I think uh, we all got uh, lots of emails about something to do with hens' beaks. And I received over 200 emails in that first weekend. That shows you how passionate people were because they wanted me to sign an early day motion. And that is a never-ending, um, quite rightly, because uh, we are a nation of animal lovers, but you do tend to have, not just within government, not just within parliament, within your own political party, very different views on DEFRA issues that you don't quite get in other departments. So it's a, it's a complex um, element there. Uh, and I say people do feel passionately about it. Um, but without doubt, the scale of what I achieved was really more in DWP. Well, so let's talk about DWP. Maybe we'll come back to DEFRA. But DWP, you became, that was your first Secretary of State role. You took on that role in autumn 2019. Obviously, a few months later, uh, COVID hit. And uh, the department was dealing with rising unemployment and need for greater support for households. What difficulties do you think um, the sort of particularly the Department for Work and Pensions faced when the pandemic first started, and how did you go about managing those? Well, I have to give credit to Peter Schofield, the permanent secretary. Um, I think he navigated the department. We had worked together. He, we used to joke initially that there'd been so many secretaries of state in DWP um, ever since IDS had, had gone um, that they got used to running the department, if that makes sense. Um, so. Uh, people would come along of different um, kind of lengths and uh, I was thrilled when I got the phone call from Boris Johnson to ask me to go do that role. But in terms of things like the business continuity, instead of uh, perhaps taking a few months to get to the situation, I think it got triggered kind of like the emergency element uh, within day three. Um, and it, it's elements like that that the department was reasonably well prepared pretty well prepared, actually, especially when you consider what's happened elsewhere. Uh, but for example, we then had to embark on a situation on how we needed to reach the most vulnerable people. And very early on, it was also people who were turning to DWP, to the state, for the first time in their life, because they were faced with having no money. And if I think back, I think uh, on more than one occasion, we had over 100,000 claims in a day. Um, I think there was a particular stretch of just under half a million in nine days of applying. And at times, I have to say, it felt like, um, uh, I don't know if you know that Wallace and Gromit film, where the uh, uh, Gromit's on the front of the train, kind of laying the track as it goes. And it did feel a bit like that at certain points. Um, but I think by having those daily meetings, uh, getting quick understanding, sharing, so really trying to accelerate a shared understanding at the very top of the organisation, involving all the ministers as well, by the way, um, not just the Secretary of State, then we were able to take quick, effective decisions um, in order to help people when they were potentially at their most vulnerable. 
And so DWP, you know, it's, it's, it's an enormous organization, tens of thousands of civil servants, offices across the whole country. It's managing huge amounts mm. of information. How do you get that into Caxton House and ensure that you get the information you need when you're sitting on top of that enormous structure? Well, I have to be open with you. That took quite a lot of time. And that's where my <coughs> analytical um, kind of uh, background came to the fore. Because we were trying to, the way the department was managed was more regions, didn't quite align with other regions. It was what was operationally convenient for DWP. Um, we were making huge decisions on, not just during the COVID time, but for example, the, the survey that gets done that then determines the policy and your negotiations with the OBR of uh, what you do with different benefits and elements like that. And we were doing that on a survey of about 15,000 people. So I increased that to 45,000. So we could start to kind of unravel what was really happening around the country. Um, I mean, in my quite, quite early analysis, um, I used to do a lot on whiteboards and triangles and try and connect all these things together. And it became very clear that uh, London and the Southeast was overheating and we needed to get jobs to people, not people to jobs. Otherwise, as what was quite evident when I was looking at an early analysis, uh, things like the local housing allowance, the disparity, say, in London or Cambridge or Oxford or Bristol, you know, the classic university towns, uh, we were spending huge sums of money there. And by the way, we are spending still over, well over £30 billion on helping people with the cost of housing every year, and it's going up. But uh, it's those sorts of things to try and take a slightly different mindset but then start to try and understand how do you get not just the data, because uh, trying to get data wasn't always very easy, but the key thing, and I think one of the challenges right across government, is the level of analysis. Mm -hmm. And in a slightly different way, we've got economists coming out of our ears. You can do quite big macro things, but trying to take it more into a management information sort of approach, even down to, as we'd started doing, to job centre level, um, to try and get that to allow, because one of the things that I really wanted to make sure happened, Tim, I used to have this thing about trust and empower to deliver and to give autonomy. But if you do that, you have to have accountability. And that was a key element of trying to, which took time, as I say, to get to, the, to that, as well as the creation of our delivery board, our delivery unit. Um, our, I brought analysts into my private office uh, very specifically, so I didn't have to get everything filtered and kind of be involved in the conversation and you know I had some brilliant spads who could help me with that as well um, and uh, that's something uh, that uh, I really tried to make a, a difference on so again it was quite an interesting organisation I think in the end there were just under 100,000 people who worked there they weren't all FTE um, but for me it was pivotal to make sure you go to straight to the front line try and empower people and that in itself a very hierarchical organization was quite difficult mm. for people at Caxton House or the very center to really try and let go of some of that um, I think because they were nervous because they didn't have this information necessarily below them or if they did they didn't want to share it right and uh, that uh, that took some getting out of people as well um, and, okay, I, I want to go back to chronology in a bit, but do you think that sort of nervousness among, uh, dare I say it, sort of senior officials to allow ministers out and about, is that a common thing across government? Yeah, too many visits are pre-organised. Um, I used to freak out my private office. I'd just turn up to a job centre. <laughs> I think there's one young lady over here who I took her phone off her in the car so she couldn't pre-warn them. So we, just, we did a drive-by and it's just like pop in. Um, and what's the benefit I found it of that? Fascinating. What, why why well, do that? Because, look, I, I did work in a commercial business. I worked for Mars. You, you, an organisation like the government, you have, you don't, your customers don't tend to have that much choice apart from what you offer. You know? Nobody else is going to, unless you work for them, but nobody else is going to give you that X, Y, Z. And the service should be good. And we should want it to experience in a way... Um, I used to have this philosophy about you know, the three C's being considered, being compassionate, and frankly, being competent, and really trying to help people in that regard. I actually thought it was really important to put yourself in the feet of your customers. It's why DEFRA go and visit farmers. It's 
why in, I also had a fish tank. This might sound ridiculous, but I was in charge of International Marine at one point. And just having that as a reminder and kind of what you're trying to do really mattered. And I didn't quite have that in quite the same way, uh, perhaps in DDBP. Uh, not, I'm not trying to be tokenistic about it, but it was getting out there and having that experience and being able to connect. And that's why the focus group of work coaches at DDBP really was an eye-opener. Because uh, quite often they'd be telling you things or asking for things and you go away and say, so Plumsec, why, why, why can't they do this? Or why can't they do that? And just trying to open up, recognising how many brilliant ideas there are. And when you work in a factory or manufacturing business, you know that your most important people are the people driving the quality and the product on, the, on there. And of course there'll be some places that, you know, can, frankly, some people aren't as good as others and some of them stood out. That's why when I chose the focus group, I'd ask specifically to make sure we had the top 10 um, in terms of lowest sickness rates, because um, it is a good indicator. And uh, from that, I didn't get to handpick. I just, uh, well, we got to, they, we offered us for three people and we just picked them at random. Mm. And it's, it, for me, a lot of this is about one of the, I guess, not just having done a PhD in chemistry, not just having been an accountant, but having worked in industry and being able to bring that sort of perspective, which very few civil servants do. It's not a criticism. We recruit civil servants primarily to do policy legislation, to try and make things work. And this is also another feature, though, of senior civil servant life of sometimes people get put into jobs. They're just because they have to tick some kind of box that they've got experience. Actually, it's not your strong suit. So don't put people where they're not, it's not going to work well. So I think that's a wider point, I would say, about government, which I may have jumped to towards the end a bit too early. No, that's fine. I mean, but... Um, I do have the tenden tendency to go um, in various routes, so you keep me on track, fine. Tim. That's fine. Well, so next become, on my become list... Become a brilliant private secretary for, the, uh, <laughs> for this session. Next on my list is uh, Liz Truss's government. Um, so perhaps you could tell us how... you. Uh, think you're quite close with Liz Truss. How did you get involved in her leadership campaign? When did those discussions begin? So Liz uh, was my closest friend in politics. Uh, we had uh, met actually uh, really just in East Anglia, not long before um, becoming MPs. And Liz defeated me in southwest Norfolk. And I had known her husband at university. Um, so I asked if she would help and we kind of connected. And ever since then, we've largely been more on the um, that side of the party, I suppose, but uh, um, what I like to think is that um, there aren't that many people you can trust in politics, in a political life. There aren't that many people you can trust in a government life. And without doubt, um, I think I know that Liz would have my back, and I certainly would have Liz's back. And it's the sort of person and friendship that you develop where you have that trust. And I think um, one of my harder decisions, I think this is documented before, or things, had been to advise her previously not to run for leadership. Uh, but I was uh, absolutely behind her 100% when she asked me to, to run her campaign. Um, so that came together, and then uh, preparation for government started during the leadership uh, contest. Uh, but as you know, it was all quite a rapid um, time. Indeed. Uh, it's, yeah, it feels like a long time ago, doesn't it? But um, what discussions did you have with her about the role of Deputy Prime Minister that you took on? How, how did she see the role and how did you see the role? I think, um, I think she saw it principally as uh, uh, not so much a reward, but coming back to that thing that she knew she could trust me <coughs> and that I would always have her back. And I saw it as a way to more broadly to try and make sure that what Liz had got elected on um, was still permeating throughout aspects of government. But at the same time, she'd also asked me to do, I think, one of the most challenging roles in government, uh, or more challenging roles in government, uh, run the health service. And uh, I had suggested some others, but... Uh, um, and... She said, look, you are the best person at delivery in this government, and that is the most difficult job to deliver, in her, in her view, and that's why I want you there. Um, and what I would say is, again, um, every prime minister uses... There haven't been that many deputy prime ministers. Some of them have been pretty formal. Um, by and large, it's been somewhat informal. 
but it opened up an aspect of government which I had not experienced before. I hadn't been, obviously, in the Home Office or Foreign Office or Defence and some of the other matters, uh, but I did take more of a role trying to help with... Um, I was asked to chair Home Affairs Committee, for example, and trying to make that collective agreement and collective government uh, really work. Uh, at the same time, um, you know, having an intensity in the Department of Health uh, that I think did prove fruitful with the plan for patients. I'm still very proud of that and ABCD. Um, again, trying to bring a priority to the department on what it was to live in the for patients. And uh, that's why uh, originally it was, they wanted me to call it the plan for the NHS. And it's just like, no, it's patients. That's always my priority. And the NHS has to work around patients as far as I'm concerned. Great. Well, plenty more. I'm sure we could pick up on that. Um, but as we say, the, uh, the trust government was obviously quite brief and we know why it came to an end. What was your view and your involvement in the mini budget in um, October 22? Well, one of the ways that Liz worked was rather compartmentalised. So um, I wasn't involved in the preparation for that, even in the time in Chevening, preparing for government. My main focus was on health. Um, at the same time, still running a campaign around the country, so uh, there's a bit of that going on. I was also still Secretary of State for DWP, so still dealing with that. And um, I think the other aspect that I did was work closely with uh, some of her team about the legislative programme, about what we were going to focus on and what bills we would stop, what bills were not a priority, um, and what we would try and accelerate. So it's that element where I was more heavily involved. Um, and uh, I'm not stepping back. Uh, Liz had her time. Um, uh, I'm, I'm sorry the way uh, it uh, all, all uh, turned out. Uh, but uh, there we are. It's, uh, it has happened. And uh, uh, Rishi Sunak became the Prime Minister. And so when he became PM, you became Environment Secretary. So returning to DEFRA, the, the department that you said was your most challenging uh, department to work in, what was it like being Secretary of State there, having already done those junior ministerial roles? Well, I have to say, walking back in, getting a big hug from Maureen was fabulous. Uh, Maureen and Lynn are legends within DEFRA. They're like the ravens of the department. If they, if they ever leave, then they will just collapse. Um, but it was um, coming back, there was a familiarity um, with, um, with particularly the environment side and the rural area. And one of the things that I've always tried to do is bring my experience as an MP um, into every ministerial kind of decision that I have, while still recognising you can't govern by anecdote. But it does give you that feel of being out in the country, and of course that was true right through COVID, by the way, as well. Again, about people's lived experiences. But running DEFRA is a very different um, uh, element of life. It's a, uh, as at times it can feel kind of like aspects of the department to crash against each other or never actually even talk to each other. And that's particularly true of what's happening with the transformation in the funding for agriculture of what is happening there. So I think, um, you know, it, it wasn't great to constantly have to try and push stuff that was late or... Um, my frustration with that or being told, why aren't we doing this? Well, that's unlawful. How can it be unlawful? We only published this strategy. My predecessors have published it a year before. Oh, well, the situation's different now. It's just, just things like that kept popping up. But nevertheless, I think, you know, I'm very proud of what we did get done, the Environmental Improvement Plan, a plan for water, which I still believe has got a lot that it can deliver in that regard we managed to get the global agreement on biodiversity framework. We managed to do all sorts of aspects in terms of uh, the natural environment, um, domestically and abroad. And uh, it's something that I will still always have a passion for. Um, but uh, um, how can I put it? It's uh, uh, that combination, I think, is particularly um, challenging right now with the implementation. And that's where some of the analysis continues to be important about is it are our policy having the impact that we hope for? Um, but also, candidly, just dealing with in government can be complicated. Something that you think makes a lot of sense or you just get other, if other secretaries say either aren't interested or are interested enough to try and block what you're doing, that gets very frustrating as well. So um, um, I think the other thing that I picked up there, but I'd already picked it up when I was at DDBP, the importance of legislation, the importance of delegated authority, the importance of 
uh, kind of looking at your legal cases. So I did acquire a nickname, apparently, in, in DEFRA of TC Casey, because I was forever um, looking at the legislation and trying to... Uh, um, did this a lot in DWP as well, which led to some significant Supreme Court rulings when I was at DWP, but uh, that's a constant um, challenge in that regard. Yeah. Um, uh, I mean, again, a huge amount to pick up there, so I'm hoping people in the audience are taking notes. Well, you did say that we might question, do a Minister Reflects. Yeah, we'll uh, do another conversation. But... On DEFRA, I do want to ask about uh, sewage. Obviously, oh, okay. I mean, as you say, a huge amount of issues yeah, that the sure. department deals with. Uh, yeah. But the big one that sort of dominated the news uh, a lot last year was sewage in rivers. Yeah. What needs to be done to fix this? And why, why was in the department or why weren't you able to, to do that during your time there? So the, re the reason I'd say why people only realise there's a problem with sewage is because it was a Conservative government that started uncovering the problem. Um, there's also a challenge here about aspects of the balance between what ministers can do and what regulators can do, should do. Um, and I think the other aspect is also, um, uh, what's the best way of putting it? There are active, even now, there are active criminal investigations underway, but they are not in my hands. They're not in the hands of government they're in the hands of the regulator so there's all sorts of a sort of an atmosphere on how we need to try and improve um, a variety of things in that regard we also had the environment agency a few years ago unilaterally just ch change just for England by the way no none of the others have done it in the rest of the UK aspects of how they measure um, the quality of water uh, it might surprise people in this room to know that um, environmental quality is principally down to the fish and how big they are, how many and how big they are. That's how the, more or less, uh, in lots of the water bodies around the country, the Environment Agency about every five years assesses the, uh, the state of, um, of, of our rivers. Now, of course, that's just a, an element of, uh, and it won't be true in every single water body, but that's the outcome that if you have healthy big fish and plenty of them, then the river itself should be there. So scientifically, it's quite a challenging um, situation as well and some of the things that it would take and by the way we are going to have some of the biggest investments ever under, undertaken through the um, storm overflow uh, discharge plan um, that is just going to take time and we can see just down the road and hopefully within two or three months we'll have the Thames Tideway sewer open um, that's taken the best part of ten years so it's a scale which has only really become apparent frankly, the level and detail of it by our insistence on getting transparency. I do remind people it was a Labour government that was taken to court by the European Union uh, back in the noughties. This is not a new phenomenon, uh, but I think it's about that targeting um, and how quite a complex relationship that happens between government, between uh, the two regulators, uh, the two principal regulators, there are other regulators as well, um, but uh, it is that complexity, I think, which at times uh, can lead to understandable concern and frustration. Um, again, we could keep talking about that for a long time. But um, uh, before opening up to the audience, I just want to ask a couple of questions about kind of current politics. So last week, um, the Conservatives lost two by-elections on Thursday and the country entered a recession. If you were DPM right now, what would you be advising the Prime Minister? <laughs> <laughs> Well, I'm a great believer that we have to continue to try and go for growth. And um, the tackling inflation is obviously key. Uh, the cost of living challenge that people experience, again, it's their lived experience of, of what's happening now. So good to see food inflation really significantly dropping. Um, but I think there's an element of some of aspects of kind of one of the things I look back, it's not regret really, but just... The whole opportunity cost of government is not taken into account on how long it takes to get decisions made, even on quite small things. How many people get dragged into that um, is quite extraordinary and not particularly efficient or effective. And so trying to deregulate in a simple way normally gets torn in all sorts of different pieces. And one of the things that, by the way, I did support was the flipping of the rule bill so that we didn't just cut every bit of regulation and start again. Otherwise, frankly, when it comes to DEFRA, it would have been chaos. Um, so 
but nevertheless, we should be, have more of an appetite to try and, not just because of Brexit, by the way, but just how can we do things better without it constantly costing more um, you know, in a slightly different way? I think um, let's not get hung up on certain um, uh, kind of key things we've got to try and help people during this. We did it successfully during COVID with furlough and similar, uh, but that cost a lot of money. And, but it was the right thing to do. But I th would just say we've just got to try and stretch every sinew we have can get that growth, whether it's about exports, whether it's about how we uh, continue the... Ultimately, the decision was made probably 15, 20 years ago to go, instead of productivity, we go for higher employment as a country. Um, that hasn't changed. But what can we do more to take advantage of uh, different elements of technology to help with that growth and to make this a welcoming place for people to want to come and live, to work and to invest? And I think that's a, a key element in terms of the growth economy. So uh, I can assure you the Prime Minister gets enough advice. Um, well. But uh, um, he, he and I worked together quite considerably during my time in DWP. And he has a certain style um, of how he, how he works. But I think... By and large, we were very fruitful together. Um, the number of people we got into work, half a million people into work in five months uh, after uh, COVID restrictions were lifted. You know, that was a joint effort. Kickstart investing in young people for the future. Some of that was a bit challenging at first, but I think by and large worked well. So there's a combination of factors that he will need to take account of. But no government's faced anything like this before since World War. The aftershock of COVID still Putin's invasion of Ukraine. Many other more recent governments looked the other way when Putin invaded Ukraine, the last, invaded Ukraine the last time. This has cost the country and the world a lot of money to deal with that, uh, but I still think it's the right thing to do. So, as you say, the PM isn't short on people giving him advice. One of the themes there is there's these different groupings within the Conservative Party, the five families on the Rwanda bill a couple of weeks ago. There's lots of different sort of... <coughs> voices off, I suppose, kind of pulling and pushing the PM in different directions. What do you think that says about the state of the Conservative Party now and the future of it? I don't think there's anything new about it. So um, if I think back to when Margaret Thatcher was in power, you know, the so-called dries and the wets, there were plenty of wets around. Worked together in different ways, had very different um, views. I guess what's radically changed politics, I would say, and to some extent government in, as a consequence, is the expansion of the media, particularly social media, or anti-social media, as I tend to call it. But there's quite a lot of media outlets now who are all desperate to fill their news 24-7. Uh, and that brings you know, a thing that needs feeding that, and that doors open to people who in the past would not have particularly had a platform or uh, been on to talk about things. But I think overall, so I would say there's nothing new about this. I guess what's frustrating is that we are facing an election. You're right to say we had two by-elections last week. Um, we weren't particularly actively encouraged to go and campaign there. Uh, I pay credit to those that did. Um, but I think we've just got to keep trying to pull together. Of course, everybody thinks they have the answer of what they think will make the difference. And I think one of the things that when you're in government, particularly, um, obviously, as Prime Minister, to some extent, as a Secretary of State, you get that wider vision of what is happening right across the country um, in a way that your parliamentary colleagues just don't necessarily have. They'll have an experience primarily driven in their part of the world. But we're one United Kingdom, and that's why a broad church of political parties really matters, and it's why uh, we still need to make sure everybody within the camp is uh, facing having agreed our way forward to... To, uh, to strike out, as it were, and still, uh, still do the best we can for the, for the people that we serve in this country. Brilliant. Thank you. Well, I think that's a good moment to go to audience questions. So we have a mic. I will take questions in twos or threes. And please say sort of who you are and where you're from, and then we'll come online. Uh, there's three questions here at the front. Thank you, Lauren. Uh, hello, Chris Smythe from The Times. I, I wonder if I could ask two brief ones, if I may. Uh, firstly, you talked about points of growth and being on the same side as, as Liz Truss of that argument. What do you make of the argument that, that some people who served in government with you and her say that actually by being so vocal out of government after everything that happened, she is setting the cause of those arguments 
back and perhaps a better, someone else should take over as the figurehead for those kind of um, arguments. And secondly, on rural voters, I mean, you've talked to, there's a poll last week showing that conservative support has really fallen in rural areas. Labour are making very clear they want to park their tanks on your farmland, as it were. Do you, are you worried about that in terms of some of what have been some of the Conservatives' staunchest supporters over the years? Or do you think that Labour's determination to do things like banning fox hunting will ultimately send Conservative uh, rural voters back to the Conservatives? Well, I should point out fox hunting's already banned. Oh, there we go. Go, go for a couple more questions and then we'll come. Hello? Can you hear me? Yeah. Okay. Hi. Uh, with uh, Liz Truss announcing a new political movement, PopCon, popular conservatism, does this signify the start of a new breakaway political party? And if so, will you be joining? Great. And do you want to pass it to the gentleman behind you? Thank you. Paul Atherton, fellow of the Royal Society of Arts. Um, Demos obviously concluded some years ago that the DWP was no longer fit for purpose. And I'm just curious if there'd been any investigations into universal basic income during your time there, and if so, what conclusions were drawn? Um, Great. Right. Uh, universal basic income, it was very easy to say no to. I can't quite remember what research has been done. Um, we already have, a, I think, a broad safety net. Uh, but the idea... Uh, that we people should, where they can, work, and where they can't, that we try and help them to achieve the most of the skills and opportunities that they have. In terms of no, I'm, of course I'm sticking with the Conservatives. Um, I want the Conservatives to be popular, uh, which I think is what PopCon is supposed to be about. Um, but in terms of uh, thinking about Liz, and that it's Liz, I'm not... Uh, <coughs> Liz and I are exceptionally good friends and political friends in this regard. She had her time in number 10. Clearly, she feels, still feels, and she did win the contest in the Conservative Party um, about pushing for growth. And I'm sure she's frustrated at uh, aspects of whatever happened. Um, but there's still, I think, an opportunity for uh, that to be absolutely clear. And that's not out of line with Rishi Sunak. He wants the economy to grow as well. There's no doubt about that. So um, I think it's about how we just get behind. In terms of more broadly on the rural side, I think uh, there was a poll done, I think it's about 1,000 people across 100 constituencies, which is mixed um, in that regard, and then just trying to apply that blanket, uh, which they've done uh, by um, uh, that regard. My impression of uh, people in the countryside is quite often they feel ignored, um, and one of the things that we need to keep in striving to do, and this is one of the challenges within aspects of government, it's why last year one of the things that we did do in DEFRA was to write a basically a rural strategy. Um, when I shared it with the cabinet, I called it, it was, this is intended to be a love letter to the countryside and about respecting uh, that. But it's also about making sure that when we are considering um, the different services uh, that we offer, that we do have that rural kind of um, perspective um, in that regard. Great. Thank you. Another, or what about foxes? Well, that's Labour's policy. That's, I'm not here to talk about Labour. Um, Something's already illegal, so... Uh, another round of questions. Um, there's two at the back there, and then we'll come over here. Uh, good afternoon. Mike Salem from the Consumer Choice Centre. Uh, thank you very much for a very, very heartfelt talk. We got to know it quite well, I think. Uh, my question is regarding the generational smoking ban and disposable vapes. Just generally, where do you stand on them? Because the reason I'm asking is I'm interested in knowing how the Department of Health, Health is dealing with nudges in public policy. So when do we decide to ban things? When do we decide to tax things? When do we decide to positively nudge people by placing things in certain places in the supermarket? Thank you. Well, that's good a very good question. Um, I guess uh, when I was at the Department for Health and Social Care, I'd spent some time in the summer um, and it's, for me, the ABCD was absolutely critical on trying to improve the experience of patients and that broader element. I think one of the things that does tend to happen, same happened when I went into DEFRA, I think DEFRA's got about 56 plans and strategies, all quite individual, the same felt was happening in health. Um, instead of trying to take a more holistic approach and again prioritise, 
So the thing about some of the bans that you're referring to had already been put into place in primary legislation, but to be enacted through secondary. And just thinking at the time, whether it was buy one, get one free, banning that, um, recognising the challenge of the cost of living, it didn't feel necessarily the right approach. But I guess one of the other things, and perhaps we might do this in Minister Reflects, I've taken a lot greater interest in the impact analysis undertaken by civil servants. So there were some policies in health which were quite eye-catching, but actually marginal on the difference they would make. And I think one of the things that, when you'd worked in a department as big as DWP, I think uh, our departmental budget was nearly £10 billion, and the amount of money we spent was 230 in the last financial year I was there. It was £290 billion, actually, in the previous, uh, this financial year, not um, gone. Um, then you really had to try and understand where you make your moves, what impact are they going to have? And while I'm not particularly keen on things like the randomised controlled trial approach, because uh, I think you deny uh, support to people, um, I think you've just got to put your efforts to where you can have the most impact. And all these regulations, all this legislation takes time, takes effort. And that's why, um, for example, when I was there, I think this got briefed out at the time, I didn't see the point necessarily of focusing on adults in terms of um, smoking. Uh, pricing would probably, as it has done, um, seen a significant reduction. But I did want to focus on children and particularly on vaping. So I think it's about where you get the outcome. And quite a lot of things is also about challenging the status quo. You shouldn't assume that any policy you've inherited is the right policy. That doesn't mean you should blow everything up either but because the departments still need to keep functioning but there is an element there about where you're going to get your most bang for buck and uh, that for me has been something i did at dwp something that we did in uh, uh, defra in a different way in terms of our environmental outcomes and carbon budget kind of analysis uh, and the same is true in health so i'll come to the gentleman in a second but just, just are you for or against the smoking ban I'm completely ambivalent about it. My mother smokes, so I think she'll disinherit me, mind you, uh, if I was to vote for it. But uh, I, 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 um, the Prime Minister sees it as an important legacy, but uh, I'd rather focus on the vapes and the disposable and stop people getting into that as children in the first place. That, for me, will be the most effective thing we can do. Great, thank you. Uh, John Strafford of the uh, Campaign for Conservative Democracy. Um, Therese, there is a huge gap between the Conservative Parliamentary Party and the Conservative Party membership. And the fact is that the membership has just been treated with total contempt now over many years. Uh, they no longer have motions at the party conference, um, and their views are very contrary to what the Parliamentary Party is pushing forward. Um, and they have no way of, of, of getting their views over. Uh, and Bernie Sanders today on the radio said that Europe and the United States are moving towards oligarchies uh, with huge power in a very few corporations and huge power on very, very rich people. Is the UK also moving towards an oligarchy? And hasn't that already applied and come into play in the Tory party? And no doubt it will be followed by the Labour Party. Thank you. Um, I should say I've known John and his lovely wife Caroline a very long time um, and they're also friends of my mum. Um, so I would don't quite recognise that but I do understand your frustration um, John but I do think unlike the other par uh, parties we've not really had we've always had the leadership being able to make pretty much unilateral <coughs> decisions uh, as far as I'm aware for, for, for a long um, well, since the party more or less came into existence, as they quite different to um, the approach of the uh, other uh, political parties. So one of the things, of course, a Member of Parliament um, is there is uh, people vote for Conservatives, and that's why that broad church, though, matters. I think it's fair to say you tend to get, still get a broad church amongst membership um, of, the, uh, of the voluntary party, and I think the voluntary party has to be treated with respect, absolutely. Uh, these are the people who are going out supporting our future MPs, our future councillors. Um, I don't think there's an easy way uh, through this, but uh, undoubtedly um, I think it's right that the... Um, you know, it was good to see the recognition of the recent uh, voluntary chairman of the party um, uh, get recognised. 
And it's those sorts of elements where that conversation at the highest level still is had and continues to need to be had. Great, thank you. Uh, gentleman here, and then we'll go to some questions online. Um, Ian Abrahams from, just from London. Um, uh, a lot of the challenges a country faces are very long-term ones. What would you reflect on how you strike a balance in government between, uh, particularly ministerial government, between long-term and short-term needs? So I think one of the wider challenges is about giving yourself enough time and thinking, and the visions are important. So whether it's about trying to get a vision of the 25-year environment plan, one we updated five years on. Um, but I did a lot more of that, I would say, in my time at uh, DWP. And uh, I think there's an opportunity there to think about, when you're talking about such big scales of money, by the way, the same is true on health, so thinking a longer term on that and the structure, uh, we were able to look at why is it that we are spending over £30 billion on housing? Why is it within actually quite a short amount of time that's expected to be £50 billion? Now, that's huge sums of money. It won't be that far away when we'll be spending more on housing support than we could be spending on education. Those sorts of things need to be addressed. And it's why I did quite a lot of work involving a brilliant Ned called Nick Markham, who's now in the Lords, he's a health minister, um, as well as uh, some really good officials in the department. Um, there's a risk that I have get, I'm going to have to name a few names towards the end, Tim, otherwise uh, people will get, might get upset. Uh, no, they deserve the recognition. Um, so it's elements like that where you think about, well, what is it, um, it's supposed to be this thing about if only 1% of people currently not working, um, and particularly with disabilities, if they were to work, what that would generate in terms of the national income. And so you do work to try and see how you can get some of those changes bit by bit, but build the trust to make that happen. And that's, again, in the middle of when we were trying to do some of that thinking, COVID was happening. So, of course, the Department of Health and Social Care was primarily thinking about that day-to-day. -day. Um, and I guess it's why a lot of, perhaps, secretaries say, or departments do longer-term strategies, but you've got to get on with the day-to-day -day delivery. <coughs> Otherwise, some of the issues you're trying to address will just get worse and worse. And ultimately, our job at DWP was to technically dish out DOSH. I wanted to make us boringly brilliant at doing that, boringly brilliant at doing our everyday jobs, so that we'd have the time to think, we'd have the time for our work coaches to do that bit more for people, for our people working um, with, in particular with uh, people with disabilities and other vulnerabilities. So they didn't really even have to think about some of the stuff that we could just be boring with buildings at. And that, for me, is one of the challenges, is about what consumes time, what consumes resource. And, of course, you can expand the number of people working on something. I don't think it necessarily helps. But trying to get people together to think through those, and there is a role for think tanks in trying to help think some of that. Uh, but I think it's about how you then also turn, which we ended up doing, I thought, brilliantly at DWP, how you turn policy into delivery and make sure the connection is there. There's no point in having the best idea in the world, which I'm afraid happened quite a few years ago in DEFRA, where they produced these amazing products, but nobody actually took them up. So what's the point of that? Um, and being honest with yourself in that, in that longer-term thinking. And some of that can be a bit uncomfortable, um, but uh, it's... Uh, it's quite an interesting challenge that we all face in, in a variety of ways, and I guess health is another classic of that too. Right, I'm going to take some questions from online, and then yep. I'll come back, I think, for one last quick round in the room. So uh, from Stephen, um, in your opinion, how does the dynamic between government ministers and the civil service impact effective governance? Are existing relationships healthy and constructive, or is a cultural change needed? Well, I think um, COVID certainly helped in some ways in DWP that we had to... I'm very keen on making the best use of my ministers, but also in particular, you know, very clearly, um, as far as I was concerned, my, uh, my, the head of my private office, my principal private secretary, was on the same level as my permanent secretary because it was their job to basically try and get the secretary of state and the ministers what they wanted done against the rest of the department. And it wasn't main fighting, but about how you make stuff happen, but also how that worked across government as well. Um, in terms of um, 
I will, I'll say I had a brilliant uh, set of th um, private secretaries and special advisors, and I think uh, I used to joke, uh, kind of set up a few things between them. I used to call SPADs optional extras. Uh, but absolutely, they were vital. Special advisors were vital to making the glue happen as well in that regard. Uh, but the private office were absolutely fundamental. And uh, as a lady in the room, um, a lady called Ellie Nicholson, who's the most exceptional civil servant I've ever worked with. She was my PPS uh, for all my time at DWP and briefly uh, when I was at uh, uh, Deputy Prime Minister. And you know, I've learned so much from her and the teams that she developed as well in that regard. And I couldn't have achieved what I had done without her, without question, and that strong relationship that we had with our permanent secretary, Peter Schofield, too. So in terms of aspects, I think one of the challenges that came through in DWP, and to some extent in DEFRA, thinking particularly arm's length bodies, but also in a very obvious way in Department of Health, is how do you hold the people to account who are delivering. So I was getting held to account in health for the NHS not happening. But the, NH the Secretary of State doesn't really control what happens in the NHS. And I guess one of the things that in particular we learned by doing some quite simple analysis is that really the people at the top of the NHS didn't really know what was going down on the front line in the NHS either. So one of the things that I started to try and do was to try and create a structure within health that would also map our local NHS so that we could have those quicker conversations about what was going wrong. I mean, very simple analysis showed that 10% of um, ambulance, uh, uh, hospitals, hospital trusts, were responsible for about half of the ambulance handover delays. Now, that was me and couple of spads and some officials. We got through that pretty quickly once we got some information, which in itself was a battle. But again, just trying to, instead of everything being done at a macro level, have to, by and large, there is a resistance from aspects of the, not just civil servants, but arms length bodies on ministers getting involved. As far as I'm concerned, we are the ones ultimately who are accountable. And we need to, where we think things are going wrong or not working or can't understand it, we should get involved. But I think it's also too important to celebrate success and to praise and do where the things are being done and to give autonomy to people uh, and uh, allow them to get on. But uh, I appreciate Great. there might be one or two people who think I didn't give them enough leeway to get on. Hmm. But um, I, I feel that my attention to detail, I hope in the end, produced a good, better legacy in terms of that governance Good NEDs was really important as well. Yeah. So um, that, that can help. Brilliant. Well, we like to hear at the IFG about positive relationships between ministers and civil servants. That's what we, we are fans of those as well. So I had a run-in with one or two. <laughs> but, uh, That's for by and large. By and large. Talking about relationships, though, uh, online question from someone who's remained anon anonymous. Was it a difficult decision con to continue as a minister in Rishi Sunak's government, given your close friendship with Liz Truss? Well, um, I ultimately, and, um, and it's a huge privilege to serve in government, but also if you think you can help. And yes, what happened uh, was difficult in a number of ways, but I, a bit like my party, there's no one person that's bigger than the Conservative Party. Um, and when I was asked to help by the Prime Minister of my country to go and try and run a department, um, I said yes. Now, I'd been in a situation in the reshuffle uh, in the only a few months, a uh, few weeks beforehand, where actually some people decided they didn't want to serve, and that's perfectly respectable as well. But I think when you're asked by the Prime Minister of your country, if you, they can see something in you, that they want you to help run that department, run that government, it's an honour and privilege, and in fact, a duty to, to do it. So I was... I was very, very happy to take up that challenge. Brilliant. I'm going to go around the room one more time. If we can keep questions and answers quite quick. Oh, I know. Then you we have can to shut me up. <laughs> hopefully get through another three. So there's two here at the front. Uh, Sophie, also from London. Um, what do you think the future is for UK food and drink manufacturers, given the growing debates and scrutiny around ultra-processed food, HFSS, non-HFSS? What do you think? With also, you know, your Mars experience. I think the future is very positive. Um, you know, we have great companies. Uh, we need to do more about getting productivity. 
Uh, but uh, buy British, that's my view. So, uh, anyway. Great. Hi, Therese. I uh, just want to ask uh, about uh, decarbonisation, which I'm sure DEFRA has had a part to play in together with BIS. Um, I think it's one of the few, uh, one of the success stories. Uh, much can be said about the government's record, but in the past 10 years, I think it's been one of the undoubtable success stories. The quick, um, uh, the quick figure I'll just draw is that in 2012, coal was responsible for 43% of our grid, whereas 10 years later it was one and a half, and now we're over 50% of our output is, is, um, is uh, renewables. So how can UK, using its soft power, co-opt some of the biggest polluters in the world uh, to do their bit and follow our success story? Thank you. Well, I, thank you for recognising that. I went to five climate cops um, in my time in government, and that was to try and bring also nature and um, carbon together. Absolutely critical, and nature's been the Cinderella. Uh, but to try and use our natural approach as well. The other aspect which um, DEFRA had responsibility for was something the Montreal Protocol. And actually the, uh, the Kigali Amendment um, will generate 0.4 of the 1.5 alive. And when I was in pensions, we did a lot in our regulations actually to try and drive uh, awareness of climate and risks associated with that. So I think it's a combination of what, where the UK has led around the world um, in a variety of ways and TCFD is a good example. I hope that uh, Task Force uh, TNFD will drive that as well. But I'm a strong believer in making personal connections. And that's why, to some extent, you know, going to India through G20, going to China in different ways, some other countries, but also making sure that we don't assume what others, uh, that, um, kind of, what is best for their country on how to make a difference. We know that we can decarbonise pretty effectively in certain ways but through the rural uh, aspects of life, we need a just transition as well. So this is a, these partnerships we have around the world are pretty extraordinary, and uh, frankly, the Glasgow COP in particular went a long way to doing that. But it was uh, thanks to DEFRA civil servants that were pivotal in agreeing the global biodiversity framework. They had the courage, backed by me and the ministers, to reopen the negotiations at the last minute because it wasn't good enough for nature. And we held our nerve, and we made that difference. So. Um, we are highly respected, our science, our backing for uh, different elements uh, of, that we do, our funding that we give, and we just have to continue to make the most of that, um, even if we don't get the credit, perhaps, uh, that we, people might want. Um, we know we're doing the right thing that's going to help save our planet. Great. There's a couple of minutes left, so I'm going to take back Chair's privilege. And just to wrap up, what you in, you've been in Parliament now for uh, coming up for 14 years. You were a minister for seven of those years. If you had your time again in government, what would you do differently? I'd try and accelerate a number of things. The, um, uh, I developed a few tools. We had a tracker, we had a GBN, grippy box note, trying to keep focused. Uh, delivery board and metrics, um, just to try and see if we could copy these things a bit more readily around departments. By the way, centralisation isn't necessarily the way either. It can uh, get, in, get in the way. Um, I think... Um, one of the other things is, you know, the, there are some challenges about how you, is good good enough? And I've always been a bit of a perfectionist and, and similar, and at times that can then become a barrier to other stuff getting done. But nor am I interested in mediocre. So when I want us to do things, I want us to do it right. So in a variety of ways, there's a few different things, um, even our relationship with the external bodies. People like the OBR have a lot of, frankly, power on how money gets spent in terms of government spending and similar. Um, that's a thing for another day, perhaps. But you know, really, I think one of the lessons I've um, learned is about opportunity cost. And we have to kind of keep challenging ourselves uh, that uh, we need to continue to strive. And it's not just about value for money. You can know the price of everything and the value of nothing. And that's, um, we need to bring that extra dynamic that we have. And going back to mantra of DUP, uh, the Department for Wonderful People, by the way, that's, uh, that's what I used to call it. Um, it's um, making sure that we, frankly, um, keep focused and do our best uh, whether that's shared understanding and yeah, there have been times and I won't pretend at times there were things where I would struggle to communicate that was probably not helped by when I was so ill the first time I was in DEFRA 
where I hadn't realised how ill I was making myself. And those sorts of moments in your life really do change your dynamic Mm. and um, hopefully made me a better minister, better person uh, overall as a consequence of it. And what, if you had to choose one thing, would you say you were most proud of from your time as a minister? There's so many, that's the thing. Uh, I don't want really to boast for. There's plenty, don't get me wrong, there's stuff that has gone wrong, of course. I'm not uh, pretending otherwise. But it, it'll be without... Um, there are so many. But the, I guess, ultimately, it was DDBP being there for people when they needed it in COVID. And I can look back and just think we did it we helped those people we were at the front line we were in every part of the country and that ultimately will be the thing of which i'm most proud and it was only possible because of the wonderful people in dwp and my brilliant private office there are several of them here the troopers uh who really were troopers during that challenging time brilliant i think that's a perfect and my spads there are some spads (laughs) I think Don't that's worry. a perfect point to end. I'm not sure if everyone in the room has worked for Therese at some point. But <laughs> great that so many of you are here. So I will say thank you to everyone for joining us. Thank you to those online. The video and sound recording of this will be available soon. So if you want to watch it back, uh, you're very welcome to. Uh, you can see more on our website about the work of DWP during the pandemic, the trust government, ministers in general. Uh, as Therese has hinted, we're going to be doing a Ministers Reflect interview with her at some point. So that will be coming out soon as well for more detail on this. So I will just finish by asking you please to thank Therese for joining us. Thank you.